0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me in the written Word of God to the 12th chapter of Romans. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 9 through 16, in which Paul is giving practical application to us as God's people to how should we respond, how should we live in the light of all that God has done for us in Christ. So we're beginning our reading in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you acknowledging that if your Holy Spirit does not minister to our hearts, we're not going to be made better for having heard the word preached. Lord, your spirit must give us light and illumination, and you must give us application so that we walk away being effectual doers, not just hearers of your word. And, Father, I pray this not only for us here, but I pray for our dear brother, Pastor Matt Spears, as right now he's engaged in the preaching of your word uh, in Alabama, Lord, and we pray that your spirit would own his preaching with great power to the edification of the saints who are listening. And, Lord, in the midst of it all, would you also be pleased to save and translate those who are outside of Christ into Christ by your sovereign grace. Minister to us, convict us where we need convicting, but also build us up and encourage us where we are discouraged and need your comfort. Do all these things for your glory and your honor, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans Romans 11, verse 22, Paul sets forth what he calls the goodness and the severity of God. When we think about who God is, God is certainly a severe God. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of exacting justice. He's a God who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't condone sin. But this same God who is severe is also a good God. He's a God who loves sinners, He's a God who is merciful. And full of grace and slow to anger and full of compassion. And it's not that God is somehow divided between His goodness and His severity. The very fact that God is simple means that God is all that God is all the time. That is, in the exercise of His wrath, He doesn't cease to be merciful, nor when He shows mercy does He cease to be just. God cannot arbitrarily forgive sinners for their sins. Satisfaction must be made to his justice. And we really see the display of his goodness and his severity is shown in one place more than any other. And what would that be? It's upon the cross of Jesus Christ. There, wrath and grace kiss, as it were that Jesus pours out his mercy and his grace upon sinners that are undeserving of it because Jesus has paid in full for their sins. He has satisfied and quenched the wrath of God, and you hear it even in his cries from the cross. You hear God's severity being expressed when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you hear his mercy when he cries out and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he says to the thief on the cross who just an hour earlier had been mocking him, truly today you will be with me in paradise. You hear both the goodness and severity of God displayed in Christ crucified. God has sent his only begotten son, has not spared him so that you and I could be redeemed. And here's the thing about that. What is our response to be to that? What is your reasonable response to God holding back nothing to redeem your soul? And the answer of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is, the very least you owe to God is everything. You owe Him everything you are, 24-7, all the time. And I should say, it's kind of ironic to say it, paradoxical to say it, but when I say it's the least you can do, what I mean is, you cannot repay Him. If you had a thousand lifetimes of service to the Lord, you could not repay him for what he's done for you. And so Paul says, give him everything. That's what you owe him. That's your reasonable service. The very least you can do. That is, consecrate every part of your body to him outwardly so that it is for his use and then inwardly be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think Biblical thoughts think God's thoughts after him learn to view the world through the lens of holy scripture and we've saw last week how we begin doing some of that how do you start having your mind conform to the image of Christ well the first thing is you got to think about yourself in the right way don't think of yourself as more than you are think of yourself soberly and righteously esteem others as more important than yourself be full of self-abasing humility and forget about yourself in favor of serving God and others. And even in the use of your spiritual gifts, God did not give you spiritual gifts so that you could exercise uh, self-promotion by using and employing those gifts. Rather, you're to promote His glory, and you're to use your gifts for the building up of others. It is self-abasing, self-sacrificing, self-forgetting love to build up others. And where we are now is he's continuing to flesh out what does it look like to consecrate your body to God and to be conformed inwardly in your mind to the image of Christ. And where's he going to go in these next several chapters? I want to kind of give you a summation real quickly. First of all, and this is where we are this morning, it's shown in the love that you owe to the children of God. Next then, and this may surprise you, Is the love you owe to the children of the devil. The love that you're supposed to show to your enemies. Third, may not like this, but here it is. It's shown in the submission that you give to corrupt civil governments. Chapter 13. Fourth, it's shown in the obedience you owe to God in his moral law. And fifth, It's the love you owe to your weaker and stronger brothers in the exercise of your Christian liberty. Those are the things that he's showing us. This is where the rubber meets the road in loving the Lord and in loving one another. And isn't it interesting that the way you serve the Lord is by serving his people. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when he restored him? Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then do what? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then tend my lambs, protect my flock, minister to others. Why would God say that? Why would he tell us to minister to others? And that's how we show our love for him. Because you can't obey the first table of the moral law, which is all about our love and worship of God, without obeying the second table of the law, which is all about our love for our fellow man. In fact, if you claim to love the Lord, but you hate men, God says, then you don't love me. Because how can you love God whom you've not seen when you don't love men whom you have seen? And so our love for one another is the real demonstration. Matter of fact, it's interesting that when Jesus gives us the the parable of the sheep and the goats, in as much as you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it unto whom? Unto me. And so that's what he's dealing with here. So we're looking at that first aspect, this aspect of the love that we owe to God's children. That's the focus of everything this morning. As a matter of fact, I read to you verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That actually belongs really to verses 17 and onward. So I'm not going to touch upon it. I'm going to skip over it this morning, but God willing, I'll come back to it in the weeks to come. So this morning, I want to set before you two things. First of all, in verse 9, very briefly, love all men because I think verse 9 is a blanket umbrella statement saying you're supposed to love all men, whether they know the Lord or whether they don't. But then verses 10 to 13 says, especially love God's people. So love all men, especially love God's people. First of all, love all men. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I believe that's a blanket statement to say, This is the kind of love you're supposed to have for all men, whether they're inside the church or inside the world. doesn't matter. Let your love, first of all, be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy or hypocrite literally means actor. Don't be an actor. You ever thought about it? What's an actor? An actor is someone who pretends to be somebody else. They pretend he or she pretends to be somebody they're really not. And the best actors are those who are so convincing that you're really convinced they are somebody else. That's not Tom Hanks. That's so-and-so. That's not Harrison Ford. That's so-and-so. They've convinced you because they're such skilled actors, they really are the person that they are portraying. What, then, is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be someone he he or she is not. It's a pretense. And what Paul is telling us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is... Let your love be sincere. Don't let it be hypocritical. Let the love you are demonstrating to your fellow man be from the heart. Let it be who you really are from the heart so that it's without hypocrisy. It's sincere. It's without wax. It's nothing fake about it. It's real because its source is God himself. The Holy Spirit living inside of you is the one producing this kind of love. Have you ever noticed when you read through the book of Solomon or the book of Proverbs uh, and you read Solomon's wisdom? There, so many ways. Solomon, you know, the book of Proverbs is really a handbook of practical Christian living. In so many ways, you learn how to raise your children. There, you learn about how to re- relate to one another as husband and wife. But one of the things that Solomon continually warns us about is beware of the person who flatters you with his tongue. He doesn't think highly of flatterers at all. Because what he says is people who flatter you with their tongue, they are deceiving you because what's in their heart is something else. They're building you up so that you think one thing, but the truth is there's bitterness and animosity and malice inside of their heart. So don't be deceived by their flattery. Uh, The the wonderful, wonderful hymn says, Lord, help me not to listen to man's empty praise. Sometimes men's praise is just that, empty. Don't listen to the flattering tongue. And what, and what Paul is saying here is don't be a flatterer. Don't be someone who plays the hypocrite in order so that people think you're something you're not. Be truly, sincerely one who loves other people. And it's evident to them. It's obvious because it comes from the heart. But he gives an important qualification, In verse 9, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy, notice what he says. If you love without hypocrisy, actually your heart will be filled with a kind of hatred. You'll hate sin. Notice what he says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. The word abhor means to hate so as to separate yourself from it. Abhor it. Abhor sin hate it, despise it, give it no quarter. Hate sin in yourself and hate sin in others. You should hate sin and true love abhors what is evil. Now, that's very important in our modern culture. You know, If you go down to Inman Park and you stand up in the open air and start preaching and calling people to come to you, come to faith in Christ, and you stand up and you say, God is love, what's going through the mind of your hearers in this modern culture when they hear God is love? First of all, they don't have a clue who God is. To them God is, you know, the benevolent grandpa in the sky who just does for them whatever they want they want, and gives them all their wishes. But when you say God is love in this generation, it is true God is love, but the problem is what's in their mind is God approves of me. God condones what I do. In fact, God's love enables my lifestyle. I was getting my uh, oil changed in my truck this week. I always get it changed in the same place. There's three bays there, and for whatever reason, I always wind up in the second bay. And as I'm sitting there, and they're changing my oil, I looked over at uh, one of the stands where they have the computer to to enter all your data and and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen this numerous times when I've been there. Every time I go, but I, I forget about it until I go back in. But there's a sticker on one of these stands that says, God is not mad at you. And I'm always struck by that when I, when I see it because I assume that this is put there by some professing Christian who thinks he's sharing the good news of the gospel by telling his you know, customers, God isn't mad at you. And yet as I sit there and look at that, what strikes me is for the vast majority of the people who are getting their oil changed, God is mad at them. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. And brothers and sisters, when you're sharing the gospel, do not share it in such a way as to say that God condones or excuses sin because he doesn't. And the reality is, if you're giving that message to the lost, you're actually being very hateful and cruel to them because you're lying to them. Because the reality is, until men understand they've offended a holy God and He's justly angry with them, they're not going to understand why they need a Savior. What did John Newton say? It grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. But God shows His, his fear, puts His fear into sinners first. And then release that by showing them his grace and his love. And so we need to be careful that when we love people, we're doing so without hypocrisy. We're doing so in such a way that we are abhorring that which is evil and clinging to that which is good. Because at the end of the day, it's true love to tell someone when they're living in sin. It's true love to come to your brother, sister, in Christ when you see them living in sin and to wound them because faithful are the wounds of a friend. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So love doesn't condone sin. Love forgives sin, but it doesn't, it doesn't condone it. And so let your love be without hypocrisy. And that's how you're supposed to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how you're supposed to treat the world. That you cling to what is good, and you abhor that which is evil. So his general blanket statement is, love all men. Then he moves in verses 10 to 13, or 10 to 16, and this is where we're going to pitch our tent for the rest of our time, upon this. Love all men, but especially love God's people. Look at it in verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So clearly, he's talking about the love we have for the saints. When you were converted to Christ, if you are, not only were you reconciled to God, you know what else you are reconciled to? His people. You are baptized not only into Christ, you are baptized into His church. You are adopted into a spiritual family. And you have brothers and sisters that you better learn how to get along with because you got to live with them for all of eternity. Right? Now, granted, when we stand before Jesus, we'll all be made perfect, so we'll have no sin to deal with in each other, but nonetheless... We are going to spend all eternity together because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The same Holy Spirit lives inside of your hearts. The same Savior has given you his righteousness and shed his blood for you. And the same God calls you his children because he, by the grace of adoption, has become your father. And all others who've experienced the grace of adoption in Jesus Christ, therefore, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's a brotherly love spoken of here. As a matter of fact, even the term kind affection, is that that word is used to speak of the love a father has for his children? There's a sense in which I love all the children of this church is certainly true, but there's a special love I have for my own six children, and that's not bad that I have I love them more than I love the other children. Even so, children don't think your pastor said, Well, I love my children more than you. Well, your parents love you more than they love my children, and that's the way it should be. You know why? Because you're their children. And therefore, there's a special love you have for them. Even so, there's a special, peculiar love that we're to have for God's people that's even greater than the love we have for this world. And that's not wrong. Hold your place in Romans chapter 12. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6 and look at verse 10. Galatians 6 10. Again, Paul is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And notice what he says. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. What he means by that is all men, all women, all varieties of people in the world, as we have the opportunity in God's providence, let's do good to everyone. But then notice what he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Even more so, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now back in Romans 12. Let me just ask you a simple question, brothers and sisters. Your love for God's people, do you not find that it is greater by nature than even your love for family members who are outside of Christ? It's not that you don't love your unsaved family members. You do. But I can't be buddy-buddy and hang out and fellowship deeply with family members who don't know Jesus, who are hostile to Him. I'm actually much closer to you than I am to them. And I would rather spend time with you than I would with them because I recognize the fact that they're family. So our spiritual family in so many ways... Now, it's added bonus when it's blood relatives who also know the Lord and love the Lord. That's great. But you get what I'm saying, that my spiritual family, those who belong to the household of faith, those are the ones I'm closest to, and those are the ones you should be closest to because we are to love each other in a peculiar way. So what Paul's going to do here is basically show us how in the household of faith, we're to love God's children in five specific ways. And here they are. Love, first of all, requires diligence. Secondly, perseverance is fueled by hope and prayer. And that has something to do with the way we love each other. Third, love requires you to give of your resources and your time. Fourth, love requires you to be sympathetic. And fifth, love requires humility. Paul brings us back around where he started in the very beginning of chapter 12. So let's consider each of these in turn. First of all, love requires diligence. Look at verse 10 again. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. There's that humility, putting others ahead of yourself, esteeming others. The Bible doesn't teach you to esteem yourself. It teaches you to esteem others as more important than yourself. It assumes that you already have self-love, which think about it, love your neighbor as you're becoming to love yourself. Is that what it says? Love your neighbor as you love yourself, as you already do. And there's a certain self-love that is healthy. Self-love makes me look twice, both ways across the street before I cross. Otherwise, I'm going to get myself killed. You see, love for yourself causes you to nurture your flesh and to cherish your flesh and to take care of yourself and your diet and your exercise and those kinds of things. There's a certain self-love that's healthy, right? But the focus then is not to be self-absorbed and self-focused, but rather to die to yourself and put others ahead of yourself. So he says here, in honor giving preference to one another, interesting enough, this word means literally to go before and show the way. To lead. The ESV translates it outdo one another in showing honor. I'm going to do more to show honor to people around me than anybody else in the room. I'm going to take the initiative. Here here it is. Here's what's being said Love doesn't happen by accident, fellowship doesn't happen by accident. You have to take initiative. You have to say to yourself, I'm going to take the initiative to reach out to other people. What does Solomon say in Proverbs? He who would have friends must himself be friendly. You've got to take initiative. Uh, Let me get practical with this. I remember years ago, none of you, I don't think any of you in this room would know this person. Well, some of you may. But nonetheless, I was in another church, a member of that church for many years. And a man left the church, and I saw him out and about one day, and I asked him if he had left the church, and he says, yeah, he had. And he says, you know, my family and I were absent for an entire month, and no one called us. And so when the church gets to be that big, it's just too big, and we decided it was time to move on. Well, it's a shame that no one called him, certainly. But you know what thought occurred to me? I wonder when other people have been absent, did you call them? Did you take the initiative to check on other people? In other words, you're sitting there saying other people haven't showed this kindness to you. Did you show that kindness to anyone? Or sometimes we've heard people say this. Well, it said the church is hospitable, but nobody ever invites me to their home. When's the last time you invited someone to your home? In other words, are you being critical of other people for their lack of hospitality when you yourself are not hospitable? Who does the Bible tell to take the initiative to be hospitable? It is your job. It is God commanding you to do it. You can't sit around waiting for other people to call upon you. You have to take the initiative and fulfill your duty. And I suspect you'll find that as you take the initiative, people reciprocate. In other words, you're showing kindness to them, and they return that kindness to you. You shouldn't do it out of that motive. But the point being... Don't sit there whining because other people aren't doing what you think they ought to be doing. You take the initiative and say, I have a responsibility to the brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Let me take the initiative to do what God has called me to do, and I think I'll find I have some friends. That's what he's saying here. And verse 11 uh, confirms that, not lagging in diligence. If you are slothful about love, you're going to stop loving the brothers. You've got to be diligent. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to take the initiative. He literally says, fervent in spirit means literally hot, white hot in spirit, full, hot with holy affections, full of love for the Lord, full of love for his word, full of love for his people. And this white hot affection causes you to be diligent in the way that you love others, to find ways, to pursue ways aggressively in order to love others. And notice that as you serve others, what you're actually doing is serving the Lord. Fervent fervent spirit serving the Lord. When Paul was persecuting the church, how did Jesus take it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what he said? Why are you persecuting me? You touch my people, you're touching me. You serve my people, you're serving me. So serve me by being fervent and diligent in loving my people. Show your love for Jesus. Return your love to him. Return thanks to him for all that he's done to redeem your soul by loving his sheep, by loving his people, and finding practical ways to do that. Second thing here then is love is fueled by hope and prayer. Perseverance is really fueled by hope and prayer. Verse 12, at first seems to have nothing to do with loving one another, but I would suggest that it does. Three phrases, three clauses that he uses here in verse 12. First is rejoicing in hope. Secondly, patient in tribulation. Third, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoicing in hope. What does it mean to rejoice in hope? Hope in the Bible isn't, I hope so. It's it's not wishful thinking. Maybe this will happen. Hope is present confidence by faith in God's promises concerning the future. God has promised these things are going to happen. I haven't seen those things happen yet. I haven't experienced them yet, but I believe God when he says they're going to happen, therefore, I have hope because I know God can't lie and God can't fail. God's eternal. God's immutable. And therefore, his promises are yes and amen. And so while I'm going through this life, and going through this life is hard. You know, life is hard, then you die. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Life is hard. We go through hardship. We go through difficulty. We go through trials. We lose loved ones. We go through sickness and physical pain. We struggle with our finances and paying our bills and making ends meet. We work with the sweat of our brow, and then we return to the dust from which we came. It is a hard life, and we have sin and the devil and the world to battle with through it all. It can be very, very hard. But what keeps you from getting bitter is remembering God's promises concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. This life is not all there is. This is just momentary light affliction when you compare it with the greater glory that awaits us in the age that is to come. And I think we don't think about the second coming of Jesus enough, that we don't meditate upon the hope that that gives us to endure the trials because He's coming back for me, and I'm stranded in time, but I belong to eternity, and someday someday Jesus is going to come and make it all right. And if I think about that, it gives me joy in the midst of the trial. To endure through the trial, which leads us to the next thing, patient in tribulation. The word patient here literally means to remain under. To remain under. When you know the Lord and you're being persecuted for your faith, your name is being slandered, you're being excluded from friends and family, you're maybe even being beaten or thrown in prison. What is the strong temptation? The temptation is, let me throw off the faith, let me deny I know Jesus, and life will be a lot easier. And that temptation can be real when you're in the, te- in the middle of persecution. But no, if you are patient in hope, or if you're rejoicing in hope, you can also be patient in tribulations to remain under it, despite the fact that it's hard, because you recognize that Jesus Christ is worth it. And so I'm not going to throw off my faith. I'm not going to apostatize. I'm going to endure and remain under it because I see the incredible worth of Jesus Christ. I know that if I deny him, he'll deny me. And I want to confess him knowing he'll confess me before the Father and before the holy angels. So it's patient in tribulation. And then don't miss the the final phrase of verse 12, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Continuing steadfastly in prayer prayer. William Ward was an associate of William Carey's on the mission field in India, and he wrote this, quote, secret prayer is a root of all personal godliness. Secret prayer is the root of all personal godliness. Is it not true that in your prayer closet is so often where the victory is won or lost? It is there that you're emptied of self and made full of the Holy Spirit. But if you neglect private prayer, what happens? You get full of yourself and empty of the Holy Spirit. And so often when we struggle with temptation, it's when we're neglecting the place of communing with God secretly in prayer that we find we don't have any strength to resist the temptations that come to us. Whereas if we're fervently engaging with the Lord, we find His help to strengthen us in time of need. And furthermore... The way we're praying affects the way we, re- we re- treat one another, doesn't it? If I'm full of myself and empty of the Spirit of God and I run into you on the sidewalk, it may not be a good day for you because I'm probably not having a good day myself. So easy for me to get in my flesh, so hard for me to be full of the Spirit, and yet our neglect of secret prayer has an effect upon us in the way we love one another. So we actually can harm one another when we're not being fervent in prayer. So I believe there's a connection there. There's a fourth thing then, or excuse me, a third third thing. Love requires us to share our resources and our time. Look at verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Distributing to the needs of the saints. That is, if I recognize my brother has a need financially and I have the means to help him, then I am to do so. Or maybe I can't help him with finances, but I can help him in some practical way. And happened just this past week as the ex, uh had, had an overflow with their washing machine, and Ben was able to go and help them with it. Their kids were all—they were having people throw up in the house too. So it's like, boy, what a week! But the way we can relieve one another in very practical, tangible ways—bringing a meal to one another, giving a word of encouragement. That is, we're finding ways to invest ourselves in each other. When we see a need, we seek to fulfill the need in a way that is helpful. I'm going to pitch a 10 on giving to hospitality, God willing, for the next two weeks. We're going to talk about being hospitable. This word, given to hospitality, means literally pursuing hospitality. Again, it doesn't happen by accident. You've got to be intentional. Honey, let's sit down. Let's get the calendar out. Let's figure out who we're going to have over next. If you don't do that, it's not going to happen. And so we're to pursue hospitality with one another, but think about that. Hospitality is the grace of the open door. It requires you to spend time with each other. It requires you to spend time getting the house ready and getting the food ready and getting prepared and all that stuff, which costs money, costs groceries. All those things are spending yourself to being an encouragement to others and to have that grace of the open door. Uh, hospitality is so important that if a man's not hospitable, he's not qualified to be an elder or deacon. That's Lydia set forth as a qualification. So we're going to be talking about that, God willing. But the point you're getting at here, the point Paul's making is, love requires time, and love requires effort, and love requires resources being expended, and that's what we should must do in order to love one another. And because of all that Jesus has done to redeem our souls, it's just a small way in which we say thank you to Him for what He's done for us. The fourth thing then is love requires empathy. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That is, you're in sympathetic frequency with God's people so that when they're going through a good time and they're rejoicing and they're happy and things are going well, you can rejoice with them. You don't get jealous or covetous of of them. Rather, you rejoice with them that they're having a triumph. They're having a victory and you're able to rejoice in your own heart. But then if they're weeping, they've lost a loved one, they've they've gone through hard times, they're struggling for you to be able to shed your tears next to them and to weep with them and to feel something of what they're going through. Doesn't it mean the world to you when people come and love you and love you enough to weep with you and to grieve with you when you're going through hard times and to give you a word of encouragement? That's what we're supposed to do with one another. The final thing there that he says is love requires humility. Verse 16, View the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I find it noteworthy that Paul uses humility as bookends. He begins the discussion by saying, think of yourself soberly. He ends by saying, don't be too high and mighty that you're not willing to associate with the humble. In other words, don't view yourself as having all the superior graces of elevated rank so that you can't talk to other people who you seem deem are not worthy of your attention. Rather, you're to be humble enough to associate with everyone around you, to be kind, to be gracious. I'm going to emphasize it again, brothers and sisters, we can all say, let's say that we all as a church in our association of churches, let's say that we all could say, I believe in every jot and tittle of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We're all in agreement theologically, therefore we're going to have unity, right? No. It's important to have doctrinal unity. But without humility, it's not going to get us anywhere. Without humility, there will be no unity. As a matter of fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we won't turn there. But Paul is telling us to be unified to be of one mind of one heart. And it's interesting that the second half of that section, verses 4, 5, and 6, he talks about theological unity. There's one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one father, etc. But before he ever gets there, the first 3 verses are all about being humble. Be humble in your heart. Be committed to loving one another. He says that first and then says and also have theological unity. What he's saying is you can't have unity without both ingredients, humility and doctrine, both together. And brothers and sisters, Jesse said in his report earlier, we all have the raw tender of disunity in our hearts, of self-seeking, self-serving, and we need to recognize the ability to split a church apart is found in every one of our hearts. And it's only the grace of God that keeps us together. But we've got to continually humble ourselves and esteem others as more important than us. And to be willing to associate with the lowly, or else our unity will be gone. Two applications I want to make. I trust it's been simple this has been simple for you to understand and wrap your minds around. Two things. First, how is your prayer life? How's your life of private prayer? God willing, after I finish teaching the, the, uh, three-month study on uh, true discipleship, I want to begin a series, the elders are going to begin a series on true worship. And I want to spend eight weeks talking about how do you spend time alone with the Lord and trying to teach you how to pray. But let me go ahead and say it here. Paul says continue steadfastly in prayer, and if you neglect that, everything else is going to fall apart here. It really is. Um, one of the greatest scr- promises in all Scripture, well, the greatest promise in my opinion, is Jesus, if you come to Him, will, ne- will not cast you out. Jesus receives sinners. That's the greatest promise in all Scripture. Once you're in Christ, I think the greatest promise is this: Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That God promises, "I will be found by you." You can just not only can you seek Me, you can find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. There's a condition, isn't there? I can't seek Him with half my heart and think I'm going to find Him. But if I seek Him with all my heart, He promises, I will be found of you, says the Lord. It's repeated in Hebrews 11 verse 6. He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who... Do you remember what it says? Diligently seek Him. If I believe that, then I will give all diligence to seek Him. If I don't believe it, I'm not going to seek Him diligently. I'm going to seek Him slothfully and I'm not going to find Him. But He can be found and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The point I'm making is just like loving one another requires effort and diligence, so does prayer. I asked a young man many years ago, none of you know him, but I asked this young man the question, I said, how's your prayer life? His answer was less than satisfactory. He said, well, I count prayer as a privilege. I said, well, I count prayer as a privilege too, but that wasn't the question, was it? The question was, how is your prayer life? Because it requires time. It requires an investment of time. It requires concentration. You have to be deliberate about it to set aside the time to do it. And it takes a lot of good old-fashioned hard work. Paul talks about how Epaphras labors for you diligently in prayers. It literally means work to the point of breaking a sweat. It takes effort to pray, which is a part of why we avoid it. Sometimes it's just laziness that keeps us from prayer. But you know what else? Sometimes it's a lack of faith. I just don't believe that there's any reward for the effort. But sometimes, you know what I think the biggest thing is? We're so self-sufficient. We really think we can do it apart from the Lord. And so, therefore, we just kind of rely on our gifts, we rely on our abilities, rather than trusting and recognizing we need the Lord in order to help us. Insufficient, a sense of insufficiency is a place of strength if it drives you to your knees. You know how many times I've had young men tell me, I feel so insufficient as I'm about to pray or about to, about to preach the word. You know, I love to tell them, you know why you feel insufficient? Because you are. But that's a place of strength. Let it drive you to your knees because you're not sufficient, but your God is. And therefore, in humble dependence upon Him, you can have the strength given to you to preach the word with power. It same true of everything in our life. If we will seek the Lord diligently, He promises to meet us, to bless us. He's an ever-present help in trouble. He's cleared the way to His throne through what Jesus has done, so we have 24-7 access. Therefore, we're supposed to come boldly. Don't come timidly, come boldly. And ask for bold things, for big things. Say, Lord, please bless us abundantly because of what you've promised to do in your son. And that's the attitude we need to have. And if you want to be able, empowered to love God's people, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. And, how, and where do you find yourself filled with the Holy Spirit? It's through the reading of the scriptures and through the place of prayer. Second thing, final application is this. Do you love God's people? Do you love God's people? Do you recognize how serious a premium that the Scriptures place upon love? Faith works by love, the Scriptures say. Love for the brethren is one of the chief marks that you're truly a born-again Christian. By this we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. The world hates the church. If you hate the church, it's because you're part of the world. But the mark that you have passed from death to life is that you love the brethren. You've experienced the new birth. But not only that, not only is it the mark of the new birth, the degree to which you love God's people is the degree to which you're spiritually mature. The, so look at First Corinthians chapter 13 and the attributes of love there, and compare yourselves to it. And ask yourself, where am I in my maturity? There's a third thing about love. Not only is it the proof you're born again, not only is it the measure of your maturity, it is the great apologetic to the world. That is, the love of God's people for one another is the proof that the gospel's real. Jesus said, By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you publish really big, smart apologetics books. Is that what he said? By this will all men know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. This love of the church for one another, when they say, look at how they love one another, it says to them, Jesus is real. And they are followers of this Jesus. They've been transformed and changed by him. And the grace that we see in them is something we want because we see the way they love each other. So love is huge. It's the love we have for one another is how we serve the Lord. It's how we show him that we love him and are thankful for all that he's done for us. So, brothers and sisters, what have we learned this morning? We've learned love doesn't happen by accident. Love is something that you have to choose. Love is something you have to deliberately pursue. It requires diligence. It requires prayer. It requires endurance. It requires the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Isn't Jesus worth it for us to pursue love with one another? Let's be people who pursue that love for His glory and the good of one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all that You've done for us in Your Son. We thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that You would make us a people who are full of love for one another, out of our love for You. Forgive us for our shortcomings in this. We pray that in the days to come we'll be far more faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.